we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 um, and verse, we'll, we'll read through verses 1 to 12. One, no, we'll read through verses 1 to 10. Now when he saw the crowds, he went upon a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All right, last uh, time that I spoke... We looked at this passage and we we kind of had a general overview, general introduction to these statements which which Jesus spoke, which have become known as the Beatitudes um, from from the blessed are. That's where the word comes from, Beatitudes. And um, we saw at that time that these qualities that Jesus was outlining here, that he was speaking about, those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourned, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted, they're not uh, actually qualities that Jesus is looking for as he's looking for people to follow him uh, and uh, as he brings about his kingdom. He's not going around saying, well, where are these people? Let's gather them to me. They were a description of what followers of Jesus will be like and what God is making us as Christians more and more like. Um, as we, as we go along in our lives with him. Um, obviously, these qualities might not be displayed equally in every Christian, but if you're truly born of God, these things are at work in our lives, not because of anything that we can do in and of ourselves, not because we are good or we are naturally like that or it's part of our personality or our temperament, but because it's something that God himself is doing in us. Um, and it's as God makes us into these sort of people, this, I guess we could call it beatitude people, that we will be truly blessed or we'll be joyful, which is what that, what that word really means. So what we're going to do today is we're going to get into the, um, into the different, um, different things that Jesus is saying. What's the word? Things. Things. The stuff. We'll get into the stuff. Um, we're going to look today at verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then linked with that, blessed are those who are mourn, who mourn, for they will be comforted. I believe they are tied together. They are linked together. That's why we're going to look at, at both of them together this morning. So the first thing that Jesus says here is um, that we are blessed when we are poor in spirit. So as we are poor in spirit, we are blessed. And um, I want to see exactly what this means. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's not something that the world would value highly. It's not something that people would look at in generally in society and say, oh, what an amazing quality there, that people are poor in spirit. In fact, it's opposite. It's exactly the opposite sometimes of what people tell us to do. I used to be a teacher, and I used to be a secondary school teacher who taught PSE, personal and social education, or guidance as we called it um, at the time. And um, the very first lesson for year sevens, when they came in, was all about self-esteem. That was the thing that we were, were to teach them. 
all about how to have good self-esteem, how to, how to big yourself up, how to, how to glorify yourself, really. That's what self-esteem means, isn't it? To esteem yourself, to think well of yourself, to think how good you are. The Bible has another word for it. It's sin. That's the definition of sin. To esteem yourself more than esteeming God. To put yourself at the center. But yet this is at the center of the curriculum for, um, for school children. They're being t- we're being taught all the time to value ourselves, to esteem ourselves, to convince ourselves and to convince other people that we are something special, that we are good. We can, we can see it all the time on TV. We see it all the time in our workplaces. People presenting themselves, wanting to convince people how good you are. In interviews, you have to, you have to sell yourself. Sell yourself. Say how good you are at something. Say how amazing you are. But God tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are humbled. As we come and have dealings, With Almighty God, we can only do that when we are poor in spirit. We don't come before God saying, Oh God, you need to give us an audience because we are something special. It's not like heads of state who get to go and see uh, other presidents or get to go and see the Queen and have an audience with the Queen because they are special and they are the heads of state. We don't get an audience with the Almighty God because we are something special. Because we convincing him, oh God, you really want to be seeing me. We come before God on the basis of being poor in spirit. We need to come to God empty-handed, with nothing on offer, knowing our inadequacies. That's how Jesus tells us to live in the world. It's in that way that we are blessed or joyful or even fortunate, it could be said, I wonder how we come over to people. How do we come over to people as Christians? Because if you talk to people who, who don't know God, and they, they might comment about Christians in different ways, some might see Christians as being arrogant and say, oh, you just think you're better than other people. I think if we come across like that, that is so sad. It's so sad if we are coming across to people that we are better than them, that we are superior in some way, that we've got it sorted that we're living our life right. That's not being poor in spirit. Others, however, say, oh, I don't want anything to do with Christianity. I don't want to do with anything to do with God or Christianity. Christianity is just a crutch for people. Have you heard people say that? Christianity is just a crutch. Well, the question is, what's wrong with a crutch? What is wrong with a crutch? When Arnold had a hip replacement, was a crutch a bad thing for Arnold? He's shaking his head. It wasn't. In fact, a crutch was absolutely necessary. A crutch was absolutely essential for Arnold to be able to walk at that point. He couldn't do it without one. A crutch is seen as by a bad thing by people. The reason people don't like a crutch is because they want to be able to do it themselves. People don't want to lean on something else. They don't want to lean on someone else. They want to be self-sufficient. Because a high value is put on self-esteem and and, um, self-reliance. We don't need anyone else. 
it's still the case that 40 years after its release, My Way by Frank Sinatra is still the most common song played at funerals. That, uh, that was a survey done last year by the Cooperative Funeral Care. Okay, they'd done a survey a few years ago, and it was the same song that had come out as the top song at funerals. That's how people want to be remembered. I did it my way. I don't need anyone else. I'm not leaning on other people, and I'm certainly not wanting to lean on God. I did it my way. That's the song that the world would play as it goes to its death. I did it my way. What a sad song to be singing. People who don't need a crutch. Yet God says, come knowing you have nothing. Jesus says, those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven, those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven are poor in spirit. Another way that he puts it is you have to be like a little child and rely on God for everything. You see, in, again, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, famous story of, of the little children coming to Jesus. It says, Then little children were brought to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Then he placed his hands on them and he went from there. You see the same phrase again. The kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It belongs to little children. And he says in chapter 5, the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are poor in spirit. He's making a link. He's saying that children are poor in spirit. Now people often say, oh, well, you know, it's because children are very teachable. They'll take on board what's being said. Well, that's true. But what he's saying is people, children, are dependent Children aren't self-reliant. It it actually says, the little children were brought to Jesus. They couldn't come to him themselves. They're dependent. They were brought to Jesus. And it's to these people who the kingdom of heaven belongs to. People who are dependent. People who know they cannot do it themselves. You see, when we grow up, we think we can do it all ourselves. We want our independence. We want our independence from our parents, don't we? We grow up being dependent on our parents, and then we get to a certain age, we think, well, I I, want to be independent now. I don't need my parents anymore. And actually, it's right that children grow up and they move away from being dependent on their parents, but actually, often it's just to be dependent on someone else. People move away from being dependent on their parents when they get married, but maybe then are dependent then on a husband, and that's who they come to. Independence is not something that the Bible exalts. Independence is not something that we should be seeking. We can never gain independence from God. We often think, oh, we want to be independent. Let's be independent from God. Let's do it our way. Okay, God needs to get us started. Even as a Christian, we can think God needs to get us started on on this life. Yeah, we're sinful. We needed Jesus. Jesus needed to die for us. And And now we're free. So now we can do it our way. No. We never walk away from dependence of God. We see it all the way through the Bible. God uses those and searches for those whose hearts are completely his. And those who acknowledge weakness. Let's let's have a look at one or two. 
Isaiah. Isaiah comes before God. Isaiah chapter 6, he meets God in the temple. He sees the Lord in the temple. Isaiah chapter 6. What's his response? What's his response as, as, he, as he comes face to face with the holy God? He says, verse 5, Woe to me! I am ruined! For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. His response in the face of Almighty God, as he sees God, I am ruined. I can't bring anything. He could have been thinking, oh, I'm one of God's prophets. I'm one of God's spokespeople, spokesmen. No, he said, I'm not a a spokesman of God. I'm a man of unclean lips. What comes out of my lips is impure before an almighty, holy God. He recognized his total dependence on God and his absolute weakness. Solomon, King Solomon, as he's made king in 1 Kings chapter 3. And uh, we see his response in verse 7. 1 Kings chapter 3 and verse 7. God comes and, uh, and says, ask for whatever you want. And Solomon's response is this, verse 7. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I am only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count our number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to, to govern this great people of yours? Solomon didn't come thinking, great, I'm the king now. Now I can wield power. I can make the decisions. Other kings did that. Other kings came thinking that. They were terrible kings. It was disaster. But Solomon came and he said, I'm a child. Oh God, I'm a child. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is made up of those children. Those of us who come and say, we're children. We need you, God. Solomon, I need, who can do this? Who can do this? God, I need you to equip me to do the work you've called me to. Surely that's the call that is on all of our lips. God, we need you to equip us to do what you've called us to. We can't do it on our own. God, we need your Holy Spirit. We need everything you have. We Who are we aside from you? Who are we aside from you? Moses. Moses was someone who was poor in spirit. Actually, Moses, Moses focused a bit too much on that and not so much on, on, on what God could do. And that's the other danger. That's the other, that's the other thing that we, we can slip into the other way. We, see, we can easily see our weaknesses... Some people think that they're it, you know, and they're like, oh, I can do it all. Some people know that they can't. But actually, they think then they can't ever do anything for God. God can never use them. Moses was a bit like that. God meets Moses in the, in the, in the bush, the burning bush that wasn't burning. God meets Moses, and he commissions Moses, and he says, go and speak to the people. 
the Israelites, and go and speak to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And Moses says, well, how, how can I do this? I, who am I? I can do. He, he's, he, he's humble. He's humble. He's, he's a man who you could say was poor in spirit. And, and God's, God's, um, God tells him, look, I'll be with you. He shows him miraculous signs. He says, look, do, you know, do this. Put your hand in, hand in your cloak and take it out. And, and, uh, you know, and, and there was miracles happened there. Take your sticks, your staff, throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And God's saying, this is how you will show that you are, I'm with you. This is how you'll know I'm with you. His hand was leprous, that was it, as he took it out of the cloak. He's, he's reassuring Moses. Moses, though, Exodus chapter 4 and verse 10, he's still thinking, I can't speak for God. He says, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past or since, I've, since you have spoken to your serpent. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now Moses says, look, you're asking me to speak, but I'm not eloquent. I can't speak. I'm, I'm slow. I don't get my words out well. It doesn't come across well. Do you notice as well what he says here? He says, I've never been eloquent, neither in the past, I've never been like that, nor since you have spoken with your servant. What's he saying? Actually, God, I've met with you. You've done these miracles. You've shown me, but nothing's changed. I still can't speak. So I can't go. God's saying, go. Moses is saying, you've not changed me. God's saying, I'm with you. These are the miracles. This is what I'm doing. No, I still can't. I, I can't speak. I'm not going. Moses was expecting that God was going to change that part of him before he went. Well, maybe I'll go if you, if you make me speak a bit better. Then I'll go. God's saying no. No. He goes on. Who gives the man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak. I will teach you what to say. We can hang back from doing what God has called us to do. We can come to God and say, oh, I'm nothing, God. And God says, no, but I am. And I have transformed you. And I have redeemed you. And I have saved you. And I have given you new life. And I have filled you with my Holy Spirit. And now go. And we can say, yeah, but there's still this issue. And I can't. And God's saying, I will be with you. And Moses, even when God had said that, said, Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. And what was God's response? The Lord's anger burned against Moses. God was sending Moses. And Moses said, No, no, not me. He was poor in spirit, but he wasn't trusting in God. God doesn't transform us like he makes he, no, sorry, he doesn't do this. Like Clark Kent turns into Superman. God doesn't turn Clark Kent into Superman. It's not like Clark Kent turning into Superman. 
It's not like Clark Kent can't really do a lot, and, but he's got he's to suddenly sort of disappear off to a phone booth or something, get this cape on, and then suddenly he's okay, he can go and do it. No, God sends us as we are. God works through us with our weaknesses on display. Our weaknesses are still on display. God worked through Moses. I said he would, actually. He sent Aaron in the end. But he would have done. He would have worked through Moses. He would have achieved his purposes in speaking to the Pharaoh and speaking to all the Israelites with this man stuttering over his words, not getting them out. Not... But he would have done it. And he will do through us. He works through us with our weaknesses on display. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians 1.27 that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Paul's speaking there about what we preach, that what we preach is foolishness. But he's also speaking about how we preach it. Because we, can, we don't have to be a great orator, a great speaker, a great performer. We can be, we can have a, a strange voice. Some of, the, some of the greatest preachers ever, they, no one would have looked at them and said, oh, what, what a fantastic commanding voice they have. But they're speaking the words of God. And it's the words of God that bring power to change life. God anoints us. When God uses us, in something that we're not able to do naturally very well. That's when we're very much cast on God. You see, if, we, if we're quite good at something naturally, because we're all good at different things, aren't we? If we're quite good at something naturally, we can think, oh, that's all right, I can do that. Well, we're not relying on God. We're not trusting in God for that. We're not, we're not coming humbly. We're not poor in spirit. We're thinking, I can do it. But when we know we can't do it, that's when we're reliant on God. Now, there's, there's, a, there's always a danger of giving examples. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm hopefully exalting God in this. When I lead worship, I know that I haven't got that good a singing voice. And I know that I'm not a very good guitar player. I know that because when I come to worship practices and get together with other people, I'm like, what's this chord? How do you play that chord? Whoever I'm sitting, I sit next to someone who knows how to play the guitar well because I don't know how to play half the stuff. Dan gives us a sheet of music and I'm like, what? How do you do that? And I sit trying to work it out. And Now, I know I'm not that good, but I know that when I'm leading worship, I'm cast on God. I said, God, you need to come here or I'm just going to look stupid. You know, those who were at the prayer meeting on Friday night will know. You know, start playing the song. How does this start? Where did Alistair started it for me. <laughs> I don't know how to do this. It's all right. If God calls you to do something, you don't have to be amazing. It's not really an excuse for not practicing my guitar playing, but... <laughs> That's what I say. Do, do you know as well, God doesn't boost Moses' self-esteem, does he? When Moses says, I'm not very good at this, God doesn't go, you're all right. I've heard worse. Because <laughs> that's the temptation, isn't it? Someone says, you know. So please don't come up to me and say, oh, your guitar player's not too bad. Now, God doesn't do that. God says, I will be with you. 
I will be with you. He doesn't say, stop putting yourself down. You are someone, which is the natural thing that we've learned to say. Stop looking at your unworthiness. He says, stop looking, he does say, stop looking at your, your unworthiness and, and start looking at me. Start looking at me. Because it's me who's doing it. It's interesting, in, in Isaiah 41 and verse 14, God's talking to um, his, his nation. Um, he calls them Jacob here. Israel or Jacob. It, it kind of flips between the two. Um, Isaiah chapter 1 and 14, he says this. Do not be afraid, O worm, Jacob. <laughs> like, what? O little Israel, for I myself will help you. So he's like not going, you're a great nation. He's, he's, he's encouraging them. He's saying, I'll be with you. Don't be afraid. And he thinks, I'll call them a worm <laughs> at the same time. Just, just keep, you know, know that it's me and it's not you. Don't be afraid. Oh, worm. Can you imagine saying that to someone? <laughs> someone who's quite fearful. Oh, I don't know. I don't know how I could be ever used by God. It's all right, you worm. <laughs> God will be with you. God doesn't tell people they're worth it or they're wonderful. He says, I'm with you. We've just been singing, haven't we? Um, the song, Who, O Lord, Could Save Themselves? It starts off by saying, you know, we can't do it ourselves. It's only God can do it. We're totally dependent on God. What does it end up by saying? Now we are more than conquerors through your deathless love. And nothing, Lord, will have a hold of us. You're the living promise. You, you will never fail. It's saying we're more than conquerors. We can be more than conquerors. We can triumph in life. We can do what God has called us to do. We, we don't have to go through life going, I'm a worm. We, don't, we know who we are, but we know who God is. And through God, that's who we are. Only through God. Only through God. Uh, very briefly, in the New Testament, we see as well Peter... Peter seems like a pretty confident sort of guy, doesn't he, in the New Testament? He doesn't seem like someone who's, uh, who's got self-confidence issues. But in Luke, and chapter 5 and verse 8, when he, he encounters Jesus really for the first time and sees who he is, Luke chapter 5 verse 8, um, this is where... Um, Jesus has called the disciples and he's, he said, put out into deep water and fish. And then they, they catch a great number of fish. And it says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. That's when he sees Jesus for the first time. He sees what he is. He would have been a confident man. But when he sees Jesus, he says, go away, I can't, I'm a sinful man. Now, he doesn't then cease to be a bold man, and he doesn't get all timid and nervous. But he recognizes who he is, but yet he begins to recognize who he is in God as well. And he's now poor in spirit. Paul, Paul says that everything he once thought gain, he now sees as loss. In Philippians, he, he explains this, doesn't he? Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Well, let's go from uh, verse 4. If anyone else thinks that he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, 
I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. He got it sewn up. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them rubbish or dung, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. And so on. He sees that all the things he had that he could have commended himself. He was a man of great self-esteem. He thought he was very important. And then he came face to face with God on the road to Damascus. And then it's all rubbish. It's all rubbish. And it's, it's nothing compared to knowing God. And the righteousness that comes through him. Everything he formerly valued. We see it time and time and time again in the scriptures. All the way through, I've just picked a few out. Jesus, in his parables, he talks about it. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a man who's got, um, who finds great treasure in a field and so he sells everything he has because he sees it's rubbish compared to what he's found. He gets rid of everything. This, the, the Beatitudes in Luke, Luke actually says, blessed are the poor. And it's not as though he's, he's particularly extolling the virtues of being poor, but, but he's saying, well, the poor don't have anything to... You know, if you're rich, if you've got wealth, you can think, well, this is what I'm going I'm to keep this. You can't come into every, all the treasure that God has for you while you're holding on to the treasure that you want and that you've earned. You've got to get rid of it. It's rubbish compared to knowing that. I'm not saying you have to sell all, everything you've got. It's saying, come to God empty-handed. Come knowing it's all his. That's what Paul does. That's what Paul does. That's what we're to do. John Piper says that being poor in spirit is a sense of powerless in ourselves. It's a sense of spiritual bankruptcy and helplessness before God. It's a sense of moral uncleanness before God. It's a sense of personal unworthiness before God. And it's a sense that, that if there is to be any life or joy or usefulness, it will have to be all of God and all of grace. Now, that's true of everyone. All of these things are rubbish. Self-esteem is rubbish, whether you acknowledge it or not. And that's why... Jesus goes on and speaks about blessed are those who mourn. And that's why I've linked the two together. And I'm very briefly going to look at this about mourning. Because those who mourn, if you mourn, that's an outworking, really, of being poor in spirit. It's expressing your poverty of spirit. Mourning. Blessed are those who mourn. They feel and acknowledge this helplessness. And that's what God is making us to be. We're to be those who mourn for our own sinfulness. But we're also to mourn for the sins of society, as Jesus did. The sins of the world. We see what the world is like. Jesus, in Luke chapter 19, and verse 41, he says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. 
And he said, if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But it's now hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They'll dash you to the ground. And you and your children within your walls, they'll not leave one stone on another because you didn't recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus is mourning over the city because he's seeing they've not recognized him. They don't know that he's the one sent from God. They don't know that he is the Savior. And they're living full of confidence. We're in the city. We're walled. We're safe. We're secure. And, he's, and Jesus is saying, no, it's going to be dashed, not one stone. It's going to be left on another. Destruction is coming on you. And he mourned for them. He mourned for them. And we mourn when we see the state of God's world. Because we know the destruction that is coming. People are oblivious. But we know. We know what's happening. And so we refuse, if we're followers of Jesus, we refuse to be in step with the world who convince themselves that everything's fine. Because we see this disaster that's going to befall them. Can you imagine being, if you could go back in time, and, and being somewhere like on the, on the Titanic, that ship that hit an iceberg and sank, or being in the Twin Towers before the aeroplanes hit and they were destroyed. And everything's normal, everything's happy. But we know, if we go back, we know what's going to happen. Can you, would you imagine that? Can you imagine being on the Titanic, the, the, the band playing, everyone partying, celebrating? I suspect we wouldn't feel like celebrating. We wouldn't feel like celebrating because we know what's going to happen. Everyone else doesn't know. We know. So we mourn. We mourn. Martin Lloyd-Jones says something very interesting. I've, I've wrestled with this a bit this week. He points out Nowhere in the New Testament, nowhere in the Bible, is Jesus described as laughing. So Jesus isn't described as laughing anywhere in the Bible. He's angry for sin, about sin. He weeps. He's filled with sorrow. In fact, he's described, isn't he, in Isaiah 53, as a man of sorrows. It's his description, a man of sorrows. But he's never described as laughing or smiling. And we can often think, oh, Jesus, you know, he would have been a fun guy to be around. Hmm. Maybe. But the Bible, because you can't build too much on, a, you know, I don't want to you can't build too much on silence. In other words, just because the Bible doesn't say something doesn't mean it didn't happen. It, it never says Jesus sneezed. He probably did. It doesn't describe it happening. We must never sneeze as Christians. Jesus never sneezed. <laughs> you can't just teach on silence. All right. So I'm not saying, don't laugh. Well, you are doing. So am I. <laughs> but it's interesting though, isn't it? That that isn't what is emphasized. That's not what is, is in the Bible. Interesting. Because Jesus was described as a man of sorrows. He mourned. He was carrying around with him this pain of knowing... Well, I mean, there's pain in his life anyway because he was... 
you know, just the personal things that he, he, he ostracized and his friends deserted him and betrayed him and all that. And he, you know, experienced ultimate separation from God. But apart from that, he knew what was befalling the world. He wept over Jerusalem. He wasn't in party mood, really, because he was a man of sorrows. I wonder whether as Christians, little Christ, as Jeremy reminded us last week, would be identified with him in that way. Are we seen as people of sorrows? Not miserable people, people carrying a great hope. And full of joy, really. But not flippant, not dismissive, not, not joking ever about what's going to be for people. And have you heard people do that? Christians do that? Joke about people's going to hell? Jesus wept about it. Only God can rescue people from this impending disaster. And our response is to go out, because Jesus is sending us out. God is sending us out into our communities and beyond to bring his salvation, news of his salvation, to a lost world. And as we go out into the world, we must be careful to go humbly, as those who are poor of spirit, his body on earth, not arrogantly, not wanting to make a big show over who we are. You know, let's not get seduced by, by the world's ways of, of being attractive to people. You know, it's, we're not wanting to say how great we are. Everything needs to be pointing to how great God is and what he does. It's not about our ministry. It's not about our church getting profile. It's not about the preacher's great personality that's going to draw people in. It's not about who's going to be leading worship. You know, it, it saddens me with conferences when people, when, it, when people are attracted to, you know, to get people to go to conferences. Well, so-and-so's leading worship. Who cares? Who cares who's leading worship? God's there. That's why we want to go. We want to worship God. It's not about developing strategies. It's about coming humbly before God, open-handed, day by day, knowing that he's going to provide us for everything we need in our lives. Supernaturally, he's going to fill us with our spirit, his spirit and he's going to send us out into a broken world with the message of salvation, a message of hope. I'm rounding off. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives one of the best descriptions that I have read about what it means to be poor in spirit. And so, I'm just going to quote him. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones says being poor in spirit is about, and then going out and mourning for that. It means a complete absence of pride, a complete absence of self-assurance and of self-reliance. It means a consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It's nothing, then, that we can produce. It's nothing that we can do in ourselves. It's just this tremendous awareness of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. It means that if we are truly Christian, we shall not rely upon our natural birth. We shall not rely upon the fact that we belong to certain families. We shall not boast that we belong to certain nations or nationalities. We shall not build upon our natural temperament. We shall not believe in and rely upon our natural position in life or any powers that may have been given to us. 
We shall not rely upon money or any wealth we may have. The thing about which we shall boast will not be the education we have received or the particular school or college which we may have been. No, all that is what Paul came to regard as dung and a hindrance to this greater thing because it tended to master and control him. We shall not rely upon any gifts like that of natural personality or intelligence or general or specific ability. We shall not rely on our own morality and conduct and good behavior. We shall not bank in the slightest on the life we have lived or are trying to live. No, we must regard all that as Paul regarded it. That is poverty of spirit. There must be a complete deliverance from an absence of all that. I say again, it is to feel we are nothing and that we have nothing and that we look to God in utter submission to him and in utter dependence upon him and his grace and mercy. How do we become more like this? I would say that we become more like this the more we are in God's presence. The more we come face to face with God in our worship, in our prayer, in our relationship with him, we will continually be brought back to the point of saying, you are God. And without, without the clothes that you have given me, the clothes of righteousness, I couldn't even stand before you. And without you, I am nothing. And I can bring nothing to this. But you have equipped me. You have given me power and strength for what I'm to do in the world. And as Isaiah did, as he was humbled before God's presence, his ultimate, ultimate response was, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. As we humble ourselves before Almighty God, he will equip us. He will fill us with his, his, his spirit. He will send us out to work through our weaknesses to bring others into his glorious life.